of a clear blue sky and the tears that I cried for that woman gonna flood you big river and I'm gonna sit right here until I die I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, southern drawl then I heard my dream went back downstream to Borton and Davenport and I followed you big river when it called Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And here we go. We're going to start uh, what I've been promising for a long while now, and that is to look at Mark Twain. Um, now, I'm not sure what I can add to what's already been said, what's already said about Mark Twain. I'm just going to give my thoughts about it over the next several months. Um, I think it's going to be maybe 72 episodes. If I can sustain two a week, which I'm really not capable of doing these days, that'd be um, almost a year, so uh, over half a year at least. 36 weeks, uh, it'll probably be more, so you can expect for the next year or so for me to be digging at, um, at Mark Twain. Now, my basic approach here is going to be, uh, I'm going to do the Mississippi writings first, just so you know where we're going. Uh, so I'm not going to do a chronological um, that would require flipping back between a lot of volumes. I don't, don't I'm just going to go through it like I have been this entire podcast, at least as far as the Library of America books are concerned, one book at a time. There may have been an exception to that, maybe like the Leatherstocking Tales. I may have done in chronological order of the character. Um, but in this case, I'm just going to go through it volume by volume. Um, and so we're going to start with. Mississippi writings. So we're going to start. That's going to be Tom Sawyer, Life on the Mississippi, Huckleberry Finn, Puttingham Wilson. Um, and then we're going to look at uh, Innocence Abroad and Roughing It. That's another volume. Then we'll jump. So I kind of flip back and forth between fiction and nonfiction um, a little bit, at least early on here. That's going to be the plan. Um, so then we're going to have. Uh, Prince and the Pauper, Connecticut Yankee, and Joan of Arc. These are all published together by the Library of America as like the historical romances. Um, then we'll stick with the more fiction, looking at the Gilded Age, which actually we should be doing first because that's Mark Twain's first novel. Uh, then we'll do the American Claimant. Then we'll do the other Tom Sawyer books. Tom Sawyer Abroad, Tom Sawyer Detective. And then his final work, Mysterious Stranger. Then we'll flip back to doing nonfiction, looking at A Tramp Abroad, Following the Equator, and his other travel writings, which I included. I think that includes a lot of his um, a lot of like essays and stuff he wrote while doing travels. Of course, Mark Twain was a very well-traveled man. And then at the end, uh, this is partially in response to the fact that I've been doing um, essays and short writings for quite a while now. It's at the end of this series that I'll go back and I'll look at his essays and stories, which will probably be two. That's two volumes. I'll probably be about 16 episodes there uh, committed to uh, his essays and stories. Uh, those are a lot of fun now, but, you know, we'll we'll just hold them off to the end. So we'll be in books where I like to be. I like them because I think the 100 page format works really well for books better than it does for shorter writings. And I haven't even touched poems yet because I don't know how I'm going to do that. But, you know, you got a 300-page book, three good, solid episodes. It worked well. It's been working well for me, I think. I think it's my best work here on this podcast has been when I've been working with books. So uh, 
so we're gonna start with that and then um i guess i can make an announcement here um if you're listening i think in the last episode i said i might i might wait a couple weeks but i think i can actually uh come out now and say what i'm going to be doing interspersing this with so i'm i'm hoping to go back to maybe three or four episodes a week if i can manage that two on the tom Sawyer series and two on this other series and that will be that will be robert a heinlein the science fiction writer sorry i had to move to get my list here um this is going to be a longer series that's it could be multi-year actually depending on um how quickly i get through it that i because i don't quite know how many how long i'll spend on each book um but i know how many stories there are and I know the books, I just don't have them all in hand. So I don't know how long some of them are, how long they'll take. Obviously the juveniles, I could probably do in an episode or two for the most part. So that's quite a lot that I can maybe just do in two episodes each. Um, but then we have episodes on things like Stranger in a Strange Land, um, Glory Road, Potcane of Mars, I'll Fear No Evil. These are substantial texts. Um, which will take several episodes. But basically my plan here is to do it kind of like the Philip K. Dick series, if you will remember way back to the good old days where I would spend one episode on a story. Uh, each story would get its own contained episode. That wouldn't be, they wouldn't be long episodes here either probably. Um, but a self-contained episode for each story. And then for the novels, uh, a series of stories or sometimes I would do one prolonged like a like a two-hour episode on some of those novels but that just depended on how it's feeling or my my schedule I have it roughly estimated to be a, a, a little bit over a hundred episodes on on Robert A. Heinlein but um, if you have any ideas for bumpers for Robert A. Heinlein if you have any ideas for um, uh, approaches or any suggestions at all or if you want to send me the complete works of Robert A. Heinlein here in Taiwan you can contact me and I'll gladly accept if the Heinlein estate wants to promote the podcast by giving me a bunch of free copies I'll, I'll sell out I'll sell out for that kind of thing um, so uh, yeah that's the announcement um, I hope you enjoy it it I've kind of been old-fashioned with some of these longer series I've been doing um, yeah it's there's plenty of podcasts out there looking at recent fiction um, so plenty looking at like old fiction too but um, I just the way I'm an historian so um, I'm, I'm a boomer so that's that's the way we're gonna do it all right let's jump into Tom the adventures of Tom Sawyer um, I really in a way I don't want to go through this play by play, really. I think. I mean, I, I think I will go through the uh, the chapters, maybe, but I'll. But I don't think I need to go through the story. We we all know the story, right? Of 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 Tom Sawyer, uh, this moody, uh, kind of troublemaking boy, creative, intelligent, thoughtful, exploring the meaning of freedom. Or it's Mark Twain, I should say, exploring the meaning of freedom in 1876 through this character of Tom Sawyer and his friends and the people in this town of St. Petersburg, Missouri. And in doing so, he comes face to face with certain adult themes like murder and ethical choices that he has to make. And this is part of his growing up process. 
And this becomes then a foil narrative for Huck Finn, which we'll get to when we get there. But these these are very, very different works because they're thematically, they end up in very, very different places. One is more about civilizing and taming freedom. Um, and the date matters, 1876. Maybe it's a coincidence, I don't know, um, but it is significant in any case that in 1776, the United States had this Declaration of Independence. A hundred years later, this book comes out and Mark Twain seems to be telling adults, you don't know, you don't know freedom or you forgot. It's kind of like, you know, you know, I'm thinking of it already. It really popped in my head when I said that. If you want to go back to my little series on Stephen King's It, I talked a lot about this very theme. Well, anyways, I, that's what I think the theme of this book is. And over the course of the novel, we see um, Tom Sawyer be um, like sort of civilized. Um, and a lot of that's internal struggle. It's not external to him. It's him actually kind of working through the moral ramifications of choices he makes, right? But underpinning all this is this organic bottom-up society that children create totally on their own totally autonomously i think this is a great like actually window into like what james scott called infopolitics how people in the bottom of society um create their own traditions and ideas and values through word of mouth through experimentation through their own creativity and those can be ways of speaking truth to power of talking back to authority or just like living your life or surviving, right? A lot of these things we see these boys do are simply survival strategies, right? It may not seem life or death to you, but you know, church is really boring. And if you don't make it interesting, it's, it's gonna wear at your soul, right? So who, who are we to say it's not a necessary thing? Um, and another thing we see here is is the like the racially complex network in the American West at the time. Of course, this is set like in the 1830s or 1840s, right? He says 30 or 40 years ago. He's very vague about the time, but it's like the 1830s or 1840s. Um, of course, slavery is still around then. So you have children interacting with slaves in, in rather interesting ways. You have of course, Indian remnants. And, and I do think Indian Joe is one of the more fascinating characters in the novel. Not that he's somehow a closeted hero or anything. He is a villain, but Mark Twain cares about why he's a villain and what happened to him. And he is someone who, he is a representative of, of a population that has been displaced and forced out and, and left behind and, and be, have be, been transformed into something that's feared right something that's just a like a a ghost uh that you kind of can scare children with right so uh that's of course going to be the most uh those are those are some of the more problematic themes uh if we want to use kind of modern woke language about this book is is the characterization of Indian joe but i think you know you can have villains that are do bad things that we we sympathize with not because they're they think they're the good guy even i don't even know if Injun joe thinks he's a good guy it's just because he has been a victim himself of of the entire nation 
All right, how to start here? Well, the, the preface he gives is, is, is classic and important. Um, and just why I think he kind of lays out the theme that this is somehow about freedom, I think. He says, the odd superstitions touched upon were all prevalent among children and slaves in the West at the period of the story. So children and slaves, he puts them next to each other. That's the same category. And obviously most slaves weren't children, but they're interacting with children in a freer basis than when they grow up in the same way that black children interacted with white children up into a certain age. Right. And then like kind of racial slavery clicks in, kicks in and affects them as you're quite young age, you know, but there is a, a moment really it's involved with when they can start to be workers on plantations or farms that that interaction that social interaction changes but these boys are still at the stage where they interact culturally or interpersonally with enslaved men and women right and really culturally is where you see the most interaction in this particular book of course in huckleberry Finn it's different now, Twain goes on here, although my book is intended mainly for the entertainment of boys and girls, I hope it will not be shunned by men and women on that account, for part of my plan was, has been to try to pleasantly remind adults of what they once were themselves and how they felt and thought and talked and what queer enterprises sometimes engaged in. So, and then the date, 1876. So, I think the audience is American adults looking back to their childhood proud of their what they've created in america proud of their freedom right win the civil war become a world power whatever america's up to in 1876 and patting itself on the back constantly for freedom and liberty and this nonsense and and twain saying look no look back to when you're a kid if you really want to have a model of freedom um, so as the novel begins, we see uh, um, we see the relationship between Aunt Polly and Tom Sawyer. Of course, Tom Sawyer doesn't have parents, right? So he's being raised by his aunt, and his aunt is not very, um, not a very. She's a very soft parent, right? So it's like gives Tom Sawyer a lot of freedom in his life. She tries to discipline him, but she often equivocates when it comes time to discipline where she'll say like, uh, you know, is this really fair or he's just a boy or he's a good hearted boy. He's that, she's that kind of, uh, caretaker, you know? So the first thing we see is her trying to like impose some authority on Tom Sawyer and she can't, but as we d learn more about her character, she's really not trying to do that. She actually does sympathize a lot with Tom and somehow appreciates his freedom and enjoys his antics in a degree, even though she knows like, society may judge her as, as sort of a bad parent for that um so there's a little thing with we also can see the interaction between sid where sid is kind of the good kid right and but sid's often kind of setting up tom sawyer to look worse than he is because he's easy to do i think this is not this is drawn from life this kind of issue where you know the good kid is a little mischievous himself but by making the bad kid the target like you know everyone believes the bad kid is doing bad things no one believes the good kid does good things right so we often see sid kind of setting tom sawyer up and we see a little bit that here um uh 
Now, he goes out. Tom Sawyer goes out, and he has this wrestling with this newcomer in town. He picks this fight with him, and there's all this language. There's all this ritual to it, and I think that's bottom-up ritual. There's, there's all these kind of unwritten rules of childhood, as well as all the superstitions and beliefs and things that are, are here. And this is an example of that, is the way they talk back and forth is, is so... It's actually quite ritualistic and formulaic, right? Um, it's like there's a certain way this is supposed to play out, right? And of course, it's going to culminate in this wrestling, but even there's rules with that. There's rules with the wrestling and rules when you can be declared, win, declared a winner, rules on how you follow that up and all that. Um, but he gets in this fight and he eventually goes back home and Polly punishes Tom with work on Saturday and this sets up the famous uh, whitewashing scene, which most people, even if they don't read the book, know at least this scene. Now, this chapter two, the whitewashing thing, isn't one of my favorite chapters in the book. Of course, Tom is being punished with whitewashing. What I like about this is we see Tom's melancholy. And the more I read this, this is not the first time, obviously, that I've read this, but I'm really struck by how emo Tom Sawyer is. He's always depressed about his fate. And yeah, he's being sometimes melodramatic, but I don't know. He's almost bipolar in a way, or at least he's he's got these emo tendencies where he's often very sensitive. This is something like Huck Finn's not to the same degree, right? Things just sort of wash off Huck Finn. He's, he's much freer, ultimately, right, than Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer's very much affected by what Aunt Polly thinks, what Becky Thatcher thinks, what his friends think, what the town thinks. He's super, super sensitive. And he responds to everything happen around him very he takes everything very personally and he takes it um and it really affects his mood and we see that here where he's painting and he thinks it's just like an endless drudgery that he's never going to get past he sees like this miles of he exaggerates he's exaggerating but it's like my he sees in his mind like miles of offense it's even though it's probably not that big of offense um and he probably could have done it in like an hour or so but you know how kids are um he can't pay anyone to do it. He's thinking about that. He's already thinking about commerce and, cap and kind of capitalism. Now, it's, you know, you kind of think, what would Tom Sawyer be when he grows up? I, I always kind of thought lawyer, but he certainly just easily could be a business person, right? Because um, he is thinking about business. He's thinking about commodities. Only, he wants to own stuff, and he's often trading stuff th throughout the book. Um but anyways, you know the story. He, he, he basically says he's having, tries to convince the boys passing by that he's having fun doing this, that this is a game, and that he'll let other people do it if they give him like little knickknacks. And it's all like trash. Like we consider it trash. But, um, and then he, they do it. They, they end up doing it. And it's just like the group gets it done really quickly. And he walks away with all these little trinkets. Now, there's a theory about labor that's given here by Mark, by our narrator. I don't know if it's Mark Twain's opinion, but basically that work is subjective. What work is a sub, is a subjective thing. It's, you know, if if we like it, it's not work. You know, that's the advice you always get at career day, right? Like, if you do something you like, you'll never work a day in your life. You know, which I don't buy that for a minute, but um, it's part of this Alger mythology of, of American capitalism. So I don't think the narrative narrator here necessarily is Mark Twain. Um, you know, sometimes maybe, but in, 
but I don't think Owl Weaves. I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm going to say it's not. But it's it's America looking back on itself in a way. All right. Um, so after the whitewashing, Tom Sawyer goes out to play. This is chapter three. Um, first, he tries to get revenge on Sid and, and throws a bunch of stuff at him. And then she passes by the Thatcher, Judge Thatcher's house, and sees Becky. Um, and again, there's all these kind of childhood rules and rituals and things where he has to try to impress her by doing like handstands and walking, you know, or flips or doing, you know, doing something to try to get her attention because she's kind of cute or whatever. I don't know. Blonde. That's her major characteristic, right? Um, now, back at home later in the day, um, Sid breaks a sugar bowl and it comes blame. So this is another example of Sid actually not being as good of a kid as he thinks, but because of his reputation and because he's Polly's actual kid. Where the men are, you know, all gone. All gone. No men here. Huck Finn, he's got drunk for his father, but no real men. But anyways, Tom gets blamed. And here's where a great example of him thinking about running away and just gets really moody. And I, and I think this is a testament to Tom Sawyer. It's something I didn't appreciate before about him. Because I, I, you know, Huck Finn's so much easier to like. Um, but Tom Sawyer, with his, with his emotional extremes, I think is very contemporary in a lot of ways. Anyways, I, I'm really enjoying this aspect of, of, of his character. Um, like his antics and his playing pirate form such a big part of the, and his tricksterness form such a big part of the novel. But yeah, he's a moody kid. He's grow up. He might have some like issues when growing up. Like, he really doesn't want to be alone. He's actually quite fearful of abandonment. Like, when they're playing pirate, he's the one who sneaks away back home the first of all the kids that are that are off playing. Well, they're, they are pirates. They're being pirates living by themselves for a few days. And the town thinks they're all dead. And he's the one who sneaks back to check on his family. Tells us something about him, I think. Um, so then we have the Sunday school scene over... A couple chapters, I want to say. Chapters four and five, I think. This is the Sunday school and church scene uh, where Cousin Mary is out and everyone's in their Sunday best trying to convince him to study up on his Bible verses because this uh, church has this stupid, stupid contest that's attractive to kids. It's something, it's like a medal that the kids want to wear. But if they can memorize 2,000 verses, I don't know how you would ever have time to do that. I guess you have to like memorize 10 verses every week for like four years. <laughs> Sunday school is not every day of the year either. In summer, you usually don't have Sunday school. So you're, you have to memorize an insane number of verses to get a cheap little Bible. But he wants it. Now, a lot of kids have like tickets that represent Bible verses they memorize. He can't even memorize one of them. He can't even memorize the Beatitudes. Um, so where am I at? Um so eventually, well, there's a great scene, too, where he's washing up here and Polly's got to, like, clean his face, but doesn't want to clean his whole body because it's so dirty. So just, like, washes his face and then he puts on his nice clothes. So he's, like, dirty from the neck down, but the head up, he's 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 not. And there's, like, a, a weird kind of racial thing here where he talks about, like, almost being colored to being white. So that's kind of wild. But anyways, he goes to the, 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 the church, to the Sunday school, and 
is bored with that. And then he's able to exchange the trinkets he got for whitewashing for a little more capitalism here for the tickets that represent the Bible verses that have been memorized. And then he's able to use that to cash in enough to get a Bible. And he gets like honored by the by the church and Judge Thatcher. And then he can't answer any questions about the Bible. And that's a funny scene. It's, it's good. This church stuff is really, really good. It's really fun to read. But there's a lot of comedy at the expense of like the the church crowd, especially in chapter five here, which is set in church, where everyone is sort of lo like local dignitaries are trying to show off their class status as much as they can. Widow Douglas, of course, is the richest woman in town, and she's like the top tier. But you also have the model boys and girls, everyone being dressed out in their you know out in their Sunday best. Tom thinks they're all kind of snobbish. But it's basically the whole town is is in this church, right? You have a church choir that doesn't sing well and is not really obeying the rules. And that's the point here is like everyone's putting on airs except Tom Sawyer's not. Huck Finn's not going to go to church, of course. Um, but everyone else in town is. And they're all putting on airs. But they're all as bored as Tom Sawyer when the speeches begin, right? We get this bad minister who can't sing. It's all wonderful. Boring prayers and a boring, boring sermon. And there's a scene where he talks about how he knows how many pages the sermon is. I don't know if they're getting text copies of the sermon. And that doesn't make much sense to me. But, you know, it's just like, it's just a period. The point is, it's just a period of time that Tom Sawyer has to get through each week. But he's so imaginative. So his imagination, he's, how he plays with the setting, how he plays with the bugs kids being so close to the ground right this is something jesse on sff po uh, audio podcast was was talking about a while ago how because kids are closer to the ground they they interact with bugs a lot more but you know certainly sorry when you get older you're just less interested in bugs or you just take them as a as a burden or part of the background but when you're kids there's something that fascinating but also kids are bored all the time because they're in this adult world that doesn't really interact with them in an authentic way so he's a, uh, he's a, uh, you know, he's playing with flies. Um, he he's imagining like the metaphors of the sermon of being real things. Like I think it's about the lion and lion and the lamb or something. And he's imagining lions and lambs. So he lets his imagination go a little bit. Eventually, he plays with his so-called pinch bug. I don't know what this is supposed to be, but some bug he has in his pocket. He loses it and it hits hit, bites a dog that got interested in it. And then the dog's like you know yelping and running around disrupting the church and everyone's kind of happy about that it's 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 you know it's like a bart simpson moment right like bart simpson is so much drawn from this kind of idea that the adults are just as distracted and useless as the kids are they're just putting on airs they're just like pretending they they care about this stuff and that church, that's a great example of that. They're, they're just there for the status. They're just there for the, the reputation. And the, the dog causes commotion that, that, that puts some happiness at the end of this boring church service. So next, uh, the next day, he has to go to school. And another one of my favorite scenes is Tom Sawyer just wanting to figure out a way to play hooky. And he just scans his body head to toe, finding anything wrong with him right so he's got this idea maybe a bad toe like a gangrene toe or something well we'll convince Aunt, Aunt polly to let him stay home then he thinks oh, i got a loose tooth that's last resort if i can't think of anything uh and just again his wonderful imagination 
that he has and how Mark Twain does such a good job of exploring that imagination. Um, eventually he settles on the toothache, uh, but this doesn't work because Aunt Polly just uh, pulls the tooth out <laughs> as soon as he says he's got a loose tooth and doesn't let him stay home from school. Um, now, good thing the school's only f in the morning, so he's only got to deal with it for the morning. But before he gets to school, he, he, he gets to school late because he stops to talk to Huckleberry Finn. So he's the outcast, and we have a really good description of Huckleberry Finn and his freedom, um, which I'll quote here. Um, it's, it's great. It's great stuff. Huckleberry was cordially hated and dreaded by all the mothers of the town because he was idle and lawless and vulgar and bad, and because all their children admired him so and delighted in his forbidden society and wished they dared to be like him. Tom was like the rest of the respectable boys in that he envied Huckleberry his gaudy outcast condition and was under strict orders not to play with him. So he played with them every chance he got. Huckleberry was always dressed in the cast-off clothes of full-grown men and they were in perennial bloom and fluttering with rags. His hat was a vast ruin with a wide crescent lopped out of his brim. His coat when he wore one hung nearly down to his heels and he had rearward buttons far down in the back but one suspender supported by his trousers. The seat of the trousers bagged low and contained nothing. His frigid legs dragged in the dirt when not rolled up. Huckleberry came and went at his own free will. He slept on doorsteps in fine weather and in empty hogsheads and wet. He did not have to go to school or church or call any bean master or obey anybody. He could go fishing or swimming when and where he chose and stay as long as it suited him. Nobody forbade him to fight. He could sit up as late as he pleased. He was always the first boy that went barefoot in the spring, the last to resume leather in the fall. He never had to wash nor put on clean clothes. He could swear wonderfully. In a word, everything that goes to make life precious the boy had. So, so thought every harassed, hampered, respectable boy in St. Petersburg. So he's super, super unique. He's distinctive. Many towns don't even have someone like this. Everyone is at, at worst, or at best, a, a Tom Sawyer type character who's civilized deep down. So Huck Finn is the challenge to the morality, uh, to this claim, or to the claims of adults that they have achieved freedom. But you weren't even free when you were a kid, probably. I can show you something. I can show you freedom if you want. And you're not going to like it. You're not going to want to do it because you don't want to fucking sleep outside. You don't want to be a neglected child, uneducated. Or whatever. Really. You might romanticize that figure, but you don't really want to have that life. Right? But people have it, and people have achieved it. And and maybe what little freedom you had as a child, you squandered as you grew up. I think that's the message of this story. Maybe not. I don't know. I could be wrong. But we get this wonderful conversation back and forth that is all about ritual bet between Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn about the dead cat. I want, what, one, th one thing I was thinking about here, like filming adaptations, I always put Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer like as they're the best of friends. And they're, they're, they're acquaintances, right? They're not best of friends. Um, is it like Joe? Joe's like Tom Sawyer's best friend. He's the bosom mate, right? Huckle Finn is just like, out, like the outcast. He's out, out there. He's a, he's a challenge to... to Tom Sawyer in some ways and a challenge to the reader but they're not like friends they know each other and of course they they get together at the end of Huckleberry Finn's novel too 
maybe in those later books they're always hanging out together i don't know it's been a while since i read those tom sawyer detective things but in this book it doesn't seem huck finn really is he's just another boy hanging around right but anyways they get into back and forth about how to cure warts because huck finn has this dead cat and he says it can cure warts and the way you do it is you go out to a graveyard at night you find the devils you tell them to go away then you throw the cat and tell the cat to go away and then the wart tell the warts to follow the cat this is a ritual but they talk about other rituals that might work like you know using stump water or using um you know saying certain magic things talks about witches but here's the really cool thing about all this it's really amazing shit here super awesome about the superstitions and beliefs because they're all organic it's all bottom up none of this is rooted in christianity it's rooted in like vernacular traditions i sound like i'm in the lovecraft series again in incredibly also african-american traditions are a big part of of this right in fact huck finn talks about how he got it from a black slave some of these stories secondhand or something from a black slave Anyways, he eventually goes gets home to gets home from school quite late, and he is punished because uh, he says he 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 was talking to Huckleberry Finn, but he sees Beck Thatcher, and he basically is falling in love with Becky Thatcher, and they chit chat a little bit, and he writes on the chalkboard thing, the little chalkboard that they have, "I love you." Um, the next chapter is basically they're. Um, Back in school, Tom and, and Joe Harper, his good friend, are not paying attention in school and they sort of get punished again. Again, they are always being the target of these bad behaviors, even though everyone in, in that class is bored. Some people just do a better job. They're less honest and they fake it a little bit better, like they're playing with a tick or something at this. But at lunch, which is apparently when the school day ends here, uh, Tom is hanging out with uh, uh, Becky Thatcher and they sneak out together and he's trying to in a very awkward way flirt with her but try to get her to say i love you by saying like what did i say what did i write on the board and she's like oh i cannot say and he's like tell me tell me tell me he wants just wants her to say i love you uh even this has certain rules and rituals i think to it but it's much more awkward and he's getting his ideas about courtship and things i think from novels the same way he gets his idea about pirates or anything else he's playing he gets those ideas from pop culture the pop culture of the time novels and things and i think he's got some chivalrous ideas but it's been like distilled through culture and the mind of a of a boy um she eventually does say it though and it's a nice moment but he mentions how he was previously engaged to amy lawrence another girl in fact, that's part of this. He's trying to talk her into getting being engaged with him, which in his mind just sort of means like, you know, you'll be my little grade school girlfriend kind of thing. But when he mentions Amy Lawrence, she realizes, oh, he was engaged to this Amy Lawrence before, and she cries. I don't know what to make of Be Becky Thatcher side of it. I understand why Tom is kind of head over heels for her, maybe because I, I was a boy at one point too. That was a bit girl crazy. But uh, Becky kind of takes this relationship a little too seriously, too. Maybe maybe I always get this kind of impression of Becky Thatcher as a little more mature and grown up. But she's also a little kid playing these little kid games. Um, Tom tries to repair this with a little lame gift, but it doesn't work. And Tom leaves. And that's... Um, so he's out in the woods, then. This is chapter 8. He goes out into the woods. 
And he's again melancholic. So he kind of has this um, bout of depression again. He thinks about dying. He thinks about running away. He thinks about joining the Indians. Now, he's not going to do any of these things. Even though running away is kind of the fake kind of running away. Although more serious than when, when, when the kids I was around growing up ran away. They would like run away for 20 minutes. They, 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 these guys, when they do run away, they, they run away. They take it serious. They take their fake runaway ser- more seriously than people do these days. Kids these days don't even know how to run away properly. Um, but he decides the best thing to do is kind of become a pirate. And I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to try not to say they're playing pirate. Because I, I think they are becoming pirates in a very real way in their, their mind. I want to give their actions more legitimacy more more authority they're not just plain but he 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 wants to become a pirate and he wants to look for for hidden treasure um and eventually though he ends up playing he meets up with other boys and he ends up playing robin hood with other boys so he can't play pirate yet but he'll get his chance in a little bit so uh that night um tom is unable to sleep he can't sleep. He's, again, still depressed and miserable, and he can't really sleep. So uh, he eventually hears Huck Finn out in the graveyard, and he goes out there. So here's where the plot changes. So up to now, this has really been about Tom Sawyer and his family and his friends and his interactions and his games and his rituals and his, his imagination and all that kind of stuff. It's all great stuff. It could be the whole novel and still be a great novel. But it changes at this point. Where the adult world really interjects itself in a very brutal and, and, and I'd say, a very unfair way to the boys. Um, so Tom sneaks out through the window to meet Huck. And they're playing out in the graveyard. He's trying, of course, get rid of warts or whatever. And eventually they see these devils come. And it's actually Injun Joe and Muff Potter. Muff Potter is like a local drunk. Uh, which, of course, has a lot in common with Huck Finn's old father, who we don't really meet in this book. We don't meet him till the next, uh, till the Huckleberry Finn book. And they're with this Dr. Robinson, and, and for whatever reason, I don't remember if this is ever explained. Uh, it's not in the first half, anyways, that Dr. Robinson is kind of grave robbing. Uh, maybe for, like, matter for, like, some kind of medical experiment or, if, like, dissection. I know that was a thing, like, in the 18th century. I didn't know it was still a thing in the 19th century. I thought by then you had regular paths to get medical cadavers. Um, but he's, he's hired these two people basically to do this and they dig up, um, this horse William, horse, horse Williams grave. And eventually though, they fight over money, uh, where Robinson says he's not going to pay them or they, like, I think Injun Joe begins to try to extort more money from Robinson and he resists and and then the fight breaks out. But first, Injun Joe declares his resentment. So, again, I don't think we're meant to sympathize with Injun Joe. I think he is a straight-up villain. But does just because he's a villain doesn't mean he doesn't have resentments. His own um, uh, reasons for be- his own path that made him a villain. Here's part of what he says. Of course, there's a long history to his resentment, too, that goes back centuries. 
But he says, um, five years ago, you drove me away from your father's kitchen one night when I come to ask for something to eat. And you said I weren't there for any good. And when I swore I'd get even with you, if it took 100 years, your father had me jailed for a vagrant. Did you think I'd forget? The engine blood ain't in me for nothing. And now I've got you and you've got to settle, you know. End quote. So anyways, they fight and Injun Joe kills Dr. Robinson with uh, Muff Potter's knife and then proceeds to immediately begin to frame uh, Muff Potter. So he's already planning the frame job by using his knife and putting it in his hand because Muff Potter was knocked unconscious during the during the scuffle and he's the town drunk. So he'll be, it'll be easier to punch down on, on poor Muff Potter. So after this... Uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn run away and and they begin to fear the consequence of what they saw. They basically think like if they tell, so here's the dilemma. If it's just a murder that they witnessed and they don't tell about it, that's one thing. But Muff Potter is being blamed. So there's a life at stake here. Um, but they're afraid if they tell and Injun Joe doesn't get the noose, isn't, isn't hung, that he'll come back and kill them. So they're terrified of this. So they make a vow. They actually write it down. Actually, Tom Sawyer writes it because Huck Finn can't write. Writes it down and, and that says they'll never tell. And then there's a little ritual here or a little superstition where they say um, they'll, they'll die in their track. They'll, they'll die immediately in their tracks and rot if they, if they break that oath. So it's like a solemn oath that they must uphold. Um... But, now we don't really get Huck Finn's point of view about any of this, but Tom Sawyer's point of view is that he's got his conscience. He's already thinking that if someone else takes the blame for this murder, it's going to be Muff Potter, who didn't do anything wrong except be hired to be a grave robber. And that then, and then they could stop it, right? So he actually feels um, conscience bearing down on him. And he feels anxious about this and the morality of it all. So this is another turning point in the novel where Tom Sawyer really begins to reflect on his moral choices a lot more. This is part of him maturing into society because he is so civilized at the end of the day. You know, his his antics are marginal. So I, why Aunt Polly can accept him but can't accept like Huckleberry Finn. And then Tom's going to be anxious for much of the rest of the novel. Um, in fact, the next chapter is really about Tom's conscience and how it's bothering him. Um, but it's also about how the town gets news of, of, of Dr. Robinson's murder, the Muff Potter accusation, and Injun Joe makes his accusation against Potter. And the whole town's out for this. So Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, they see, at least Tom Sawyer sees, I forget if. Huckleberry Finn's in the scene too, but Tom Sawyer definitely sees Injun Joe there because he's making his statement. It's an inquest, right? So he's making his statement saying Muff Potter did it. He admits to doing the grave robbing or whatever, but says actually the murder was done by this other guy. And then so when Tom begins to really feel guilt over his knowledge and it bothers him in his sleep, he really can't function. I think this is one reason he eventually wants to run away and get away from society is because he really can't accept that this, this moral guilt that he has that he knows who really killed this man um at the same time though there's popular hatred for injun joe and fear of him by others in fact there's this idea expressed here that people can't 
arrest him for the grave robbing and the body snatching because they're so fearful of him. So he's, even though he's claiming, trying to blame someone else for it, it's not like the town doesn't also still see him as, as a villain. As dangerous. Now this conscience attack begins to affect him physically and Aunt Polly thinks he's sick. Um, he's also depressed by the fact that Becky Thatcher like kind of snubs him. Um, and so he's bothered by that too. But um, Aunt Polly begins to give him these, these bad quack medicines. It's kind of like, again, like you've had all these quack medicines that the boys are talking about like with the warts things, but Aunt Polly's not any better. It's like the adults still have their quack medicines. And I think that's still true today. Um, it's homeopathy or some nonsense like that. These popular medicines. And she tries to give him a water treatment. She gives him some other medicine. And he doesn't like it. It's gross. So he begins to... He basically feeds it to the cat. And the cat kind of gets drunk from it or goes crazy with it. And then Polly, again, is soft on punishing Tom Sawyer. Because she's like, well... If it did that to the cat, it probably would have been really not good for Tom either. So he was right not to drink it and all that. Um, so all that's going on. Um, and now we're coming to the end of the first half of this book. And that is the pirate plane. So I'm just going to, in case you have spent a while since you read this book, what happens is um, Tom becomes committed to becoming a pirate after this bout of depression. Again, more melancholy that he's facing, more emo kind of act activities. But he also really wants to get away from the town because he's he's bothered actually on a continual basis about Muff Potter. This mentioned that he would go to Muff Potter's prison cell, give him little gifts every day or every couple days. Couldn't have been every day, but every couple days because he's afraid that this guy's going to die for a crime that he didn't commit and that Tom Sawyer would be guilty for that. He's got that conscience. Um, but they go to this island in the middle of like the Mississippi River near St. Petersburg and they all get together with a friend. Like Joe brings like some, not Indian Joe, his friend Joe brings the stolen bacon and they eat it and they play pirate. Well, again, they, it's not, they're actually being pirates, I think, in their mind. They're, they're making it real in a way. And eventually they reflect on the morality of stealing bacon. Um, they debate lifestyles. Like there's a long debate here between the benefits of a hermit versus a pirate lifestyle. One being a criminal, the other just being like a homeless person. And I think that's a really interesting back and forth. Tom Sawyer wants to be the, be the pirate, but I think you see Huckleberry Finn and some of the others like are more supportive of a hermit lifestyle. That doesn't, it's not glamorous, glamorous enough for someone like Tom Sawyer, but it's also very free, right? The hermit. A pirate is still of society to a degree. A hermit would be totally liberated from society. So this theme of what freedom actually means, what are the limits of it is, is manifest here in a way. Now they wake up on the island the next day and they basically run away at this point. They decided not to come back and live their lives as a pirate gang. And their boat, but it's kind of enforced on them because their boat floats away. And they're like, oh, I guess we're going to be stuck here. We can be pirates for life without a boat. Funny, funny. Um, but they start to get homesick a little bit. And the people of the town start to look for them. And so they see the people like searching the river looking for dead bodies because they think the boys drowned or, or something happened to them. 
But they kind of like laughing about that. That's kind of really humorous for them. That eventually Tom decides to return home. He's equivocating and run away. He's the first to do that, which I think is tells us a lot about his character. But eventually he does go back. He comes back and everyone's like, oh, he chickened out and went home. But then he shows up at a very dramatic moment. And, and the first half of the novel ends with them still like playing this game with the town that that they've run away so i guess that's all i'm going to say about the first half of the book so um we'll in the next episode we'll finish up our look at the adventures of tom sawyer um so if you have any suggestions about this series uh how i go about it or any questions you want me any essential questions you want me to think about as i read the works of mark twain do you want some mark twain biography do you want me to just look at the works on their own do you uh, or if you have any thoughts about the Heinlein series, how I might approach that, um, please uh, give me your thoughts about it. I would love to hear that. Um, it's going to take me a couple, maybe a week or two weeks before I start getting Heinlein episodes up. Because I want to, you know, get a good start on this uh, Mark Twain series first. But it will be shortly, you'll shortly you'll be seeing um, on this feed episodes devoted to Robert A. Heinlein. So uh, if you have any thoughts about that in the meantime, let me know what they are. So anyways, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time.